It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It was about one in the afternoon yesterday when I was called off the bench, uh, went down to the Washington Bureau to do a piece for a special report about coverage of the Middle East War. And I compiled a number of examples of coverage that just sort of seemed to tilt toward the Palestinian side in the sense of using softened or euphemistic language to describe violence. Uh, We've posted that on my Facebook and uh, Twitter page, X. Uh, Just to give you one example, this is absolute tragedy. 69-year-old Jewish man killed in uh, the L.A. area at a pro-Palestinian rally. And one of the news outlets put a headline on it that said, you know, man dies uh, at site of Palestinian and pro-Israel protests, officials say. Well, the local county medical examiner ruled it a homicide, said he died from blunt force injury to the head. So why not call it what it is? Headline was later changed, as often is the case. Now, a lot to get to on the war, but a lot to get to in American politics. We're going to start with that. Story number one. Here's the caveat. I've been saying this for years and years in the off-year election, particularly the off-year election before the presidential election. Everybody in the news business goes crazy talking about results in certain key states and immediately says this indicates that either the Republicans or the Democrats are going to do very well next year in the presidential race. Well, in the presidential race, as we talked about on this podcast yesterday, and I have a column today on uh, all the increasingly negative coverage of Joe Biden and his chances of winning the presidency, uh, presumably if Donald Trump is the nominee, and there's this whole, I call it a freakout going on among the Democrats and many in the media, that, oh my God, Donald Trump could win a second term. Nobody quite, or many of the people opposed to him as, a, as delineated from half the country that either are big fans of Donald Trump, big supporters of Donald Trump, or are open to voting for him. And they voted for him before, and they want to figure out whether they're going to vote for him again. So the Democrats had a big night. I mean, it was practically champagne and hors d'oeuvres and desserts on Morning Joe today. They were so happy about this. And there are important lessons or information to be gleaned from this election, but I just caution you. This doesn't mean, I mean, two days ago, oh my God, Joe Biden has to withdraw from the race. He's losing badly in the polls. What are we going to do? And now it's Democrats 
has such a big day that this means this is a big boost for Joe Biden. Well, no, it, it may well not be. Biden wasn't on the ballot. And I would I say this not because I don't like Joe Biden. I've known Joe Biden for 35 years. A very likable guy. Whether he's a good president is up for debate. Whether he is too old to be president, again, is up for debate. And, of course, Donald Trump has his own baggage. So the New York Times starts out, Democrats won decisive victories in major races across the country, overcoming the downward pull of an unpopular president. Well, that's a good acknowledgement of where things stand at the White House level. Lingering inflation and glowing, growing global unrest by relying on abortion. The issue that has emerged as their failsafe since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. In parts of the South and the Rust Belt, Democrats put abortion rights at the center of their campaigns, spending tens of millions of dollars on ads highlighting Republican support for abortion bans. Now, that part is true. There's no question the country delivered a message on abortion rights and that the Democrats, or those who favor abortion rights, have won just about every major vote or referendum since the fall of Roe. Uh, Democratic Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir won a second term after repeatedly criticizing his Republican op- opponent for initially backing a state abortion ban that contains no exceptions for rape or incest. Now, look, this guy was the incumbent, Governor Bashir. He's a Democrat in a very red state of Kentucky home of Mitch McConnell. But for an incumbent to win re-election, even though it was by a much larger margin, about five points, than he did in a squeaker four years ago, it tells you something. It certainly tells you something about Kentucky politics. But I don't know that it has national implications. However, in Virginia, closely watched across the river here, uh, Democrats won control of both chambers of the state legislature after an avalanche of uh, advertising focused on abortion, because I live in this area, I've been seeing those ads day after day after day. And in Ohio, another big win for those who favor abortion rights, a ballot measure establishing a right to abortion in the state constitution, won by a double-digit margin. And that's a... You know, I mean, Ohio basically now goes Republican in presidential elections. A state that Donald Trump won by convincing margins. Results amounted to a resounding victory for abortion rights, says the Times, proving once again that the issue can energize a broad coalition of Democrats, independents, and even some moderate Republicans. But Democrats face a daunting question of their own in a year when President Biden's record, personal brand, and perceptions of his fitness to serve another term will be inescapable. And then the Times asks the question, will abortion still pack enough of electoral punch to overcome Biden's political weaknesses? Because you do have to have this one reminder. And that is, and this is true every four years, a much broader electorate turns out in presidential years. Secondly, Whereas in a state, an issue like abortion can dominate, depending on whether a candidate chooses to emphasize it or be against abortion rights, 
But in a general presidential election, there's a whole bunch of issues that are in the forefront. The economy, the wars, um, age, fitness, border security, as well as abortion. So it's not entirely clear to me that abortion rights will have the same impact in 2024 as it did in these other states uh, in yesterday's voting. And in a bunch of other states, there was no election because 2023 is an off year. All right, let's look at some of the other coverage. Um, Politico goes right to the presidential. Joe Biden has had a very bad few days. His party just had a banner year. In Tuesday's elections, the incumbent Democratic governor in Kentucky. Oh, this is interesting. A state Biden lost by 26 points. Handily won re-election. Now, with Democrats taking both chambers in Virginia, um, this is being cast by the all-knowing, all-seeing pundits of the press as a big setback by the Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin. Now, he did actively campaign, obviously, for his party, ended up losing both houses. And a lot of pundits out there with not much else to do have seen... Glenn Youngkin is somebody, a moderate Republican, favors a ban on abortion after 15 weeks, which seems to have emerged as sort of the compromised position, if that, if it can be described that way, uh, between what pro-choicers want and what pro-lifers want. But the feeling was if, if Glenn Youngkin could keep Republican control of his legislature in Richmond, that he would then be viable as a presidential candidate. And look, I think he is a very interesting and attractive political figure. But, you know, these local races are decided not just by one or two issues. They're also the candidates themselves running for these seats. So is it a boost to him at home if he holds the legislature and a setback for him at home if he... Uh, gains control of the legislature? Absolutely. But the idea that that would then, if, if he had a positive outcome, it would be a springboard for him to run for president, I don't think so. I mean, the third debate is tonight. The voting in Iowa starts in about three months. You know, how do you just start from scratch? And he's not that famous nationally. Um jump in and all of a sudden you're going to beat Donald Trump or all of a sudden you're going to beat Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. you got to raise money. you got to put an organization together. Anyway, I think you get my point. Coming back to Politico, I give Politico credit for this caveat. None of these wins guarantee success for the party in 2024. Biden is losing to Trump in a host of recent polls and Democrats are underdogs to hold their Senate majority, which is a grand total of one seat. But for now, uh, the voting and Dems outperforming Biden's uh, vote shares in districts across the country serve as a powerful counterpoint to the party's doom and gloom over the president's poll numbers. And here's another political story. You know, everybody goes crazy. Joe Biden wasn't on the ballot Tuesday in Virginia. 
But Democrats' big win will bring welcome news on the other side of the Potomac. Virginia's off-year elections have long been seen as a bellwether of the broader political environment and a partial referendum on the incumbent president. Well, is it? Is it also a partial rep- uh, referendum on Donald Trump's GOP, since he is not just ahead in the polls, but, you know, Trump and Trumpism is the face of the GOP right now. So this will serve as a boost to Biden's re-election campaign next year. So this is fascinating. The other political story says, well, it doesn't actually mean anything for 2024. It doesn't mean that much. This story says it's giving Joe Biden a boost. Again, Joe Biden's personal approval rating and uh, numbers are in the toilet. 39% in a couple of recent polls. Voters held their noses through their distaste with Biden and pulled the lever for Democrats in key battlegrounds. But if they don't like Joe Biden next year, look, a year obviously is a very long time in politics. Washington Post, Democrats probably won't stop panicking about the 2024 election. Not with another poll, this one from CNN, showing Trump leading Biden. But for now, they keep having good elections. Goes through Kentucky, Ohio, Virginia. It's the latest of many post-2016 elections. That's, of course, the year Trump won the presidency, in which Democrats can come away feeling good. They clearly won in 2018 and 2020. And in 2022, after Roe fell, they had one of the best midterms for a president's party in modern history. That, of course, was the year everybody predicted the red wave, which turned out to be a red trickle. So here is that CNN poll that was just mentioned. 61% of Americans disapprove of the job Biden is doing. And the network's political director, David Chalian, said the country has soured on Joe Biden. 39% say they approved of Biden's record. 61%, more than 6 out of 10. Okay, so obviously this is a partisan breakdown. While 77% of Dems said they approve of Biden as president, 34% of independents and 5% of Republicans said the same. 72% said things were going badly in the U.S., And just 25% said Joe Biden had the stamina and sharpness to serve effectively as president. Those are horrible numbers. I mean, I don't think, you know, look, a lot's going to change. And Trump beats Biden in the CNN poll, just as in the earlier New York Times poll a couple days back. But... If only 70% of your party approves of you and only about a third of independents, with those numbers, you can't win re-election. The thing is, will those numbers change, particularly when it's Biden, no matter how much, how many reservations voters may have about him, versus Donald Trump, who will be battling for criminal indictments. And by the way, today Ivanka Trump testifies in that civil fraud trial in New York. Then there are motions, then there are closing arguments, and then we'll get some kind of verdict from the judge. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, number two. Let's take a look at the war. A lot of interesting moving parts here. This is a really significant story in the New York Times. And it says the following. In the bloody arithmetic of Hamas's leaders, the carnage, talking about all the people who have died in Gaza, is not the regrettable outcome of a big miscalculation. Quite the opposite, they say. And they talk to Hamas leaders for this. It is the necessary cost of a great accomplishment, the shattering of the status quo, and the opening of a more volatile chapter in their fight against Israel. So a member of Hamas's top leadership body telling the Times it was necessary to, quote, change the entire equation and not just have a clash. We succeeded, because these are all guys who live in Qatar and have a very nice life. We succeeded in putting the Palestinian issue back on the table, and now no one in the region is experiencing calm. Well, that is true. But the Hamas media advisor telling the paper, I hope that the state of war will Israel with Israel will become permanent on all borders and that the Arab world will stand with us. So Hamas wants permanent war. And I just point that out for those who say Israel should have a ceasefire, Israel should negotiate, Israel should have a peace. Remember, this is a terrorist organization that wants to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Meanwhile, the Washington Post asks, who's going to run Gaza when this terrible war is over? After one month, we've just passed that milestone. No one can provide a clear answer. But Bibi Netanyahu on ABC saying Israel would be responsible for Gaza's overall security for an indefinite period. To many, this sounded like a return to a boots-on-the-ground occupation of Gaza which Washington and Israel's other Western partners have repeatedly warned against, to no avail. I mean, Joe Biden has called for, you know, humanitarian pauses and don't occupy Gaza. And Netanyahu seems to have his own ideas that ABC interview is sending a powerful signal. Biden and his team have suggested there could be a leading post-war role in Gaza for the, what's described as the enfeebled, Palestinian Authority, which runs the West Bank, with obviously under Israeli occupation. The confusion is adding a human adding to a human catastrophe and deepening the anger inside Gaza, where people say they are given no voice in their future. Well, obviously, some of those Palestinians support Hamas. We don't know the extent to which many do not. Hamas is a dictatorship. There are no elections. So the Gaza Strip is becoming a toxic waste pit of armaments and debris. More than one million people are displaced. Tens of thousands cower in hospital courtyards and shuttered UN schools. Entire city blocks have been destroyed. However it ends, it will be one of the biggest reconstruction projects ever undertaken. Palestinian authority, excuse me, the Palestinian Authority leader insists his administration would return to Gaza only as part of a comprehensive solution, meaning advancing the cause of Palestinian statehood. 
I wish there could be a comprehensive solution. I wish there could be a two-state solution. The idea that this bloody and brutal attack by Hamas triggering this war that we, so many of us hope does not widen to include other countries despite some attacks by Hezbollah from Lebanon to the north of Israel is really something. But as this piece points out in the post, um, this two-state solution, impossible. Never going to happen. The idea that the 87-year-old uh, Mahmoud Abbas, his Fatah party and the Palestinian Authority would administer Gaza um, is just seen as uh, unrealistic. In a related story, the House voting last night to censure Rashida Tlaib, the squad member, the Democratic congresswoman from Michigan, and the only Palestinian-American member of Congress. The second time it was attempted, the first effort failed. This time, it was 234 to 188 to censure her. Not that many members of Congress have been censured over the centuries. Uh, Republican Congressman Richard McCormick accusing Tlaib in, uh, in this resolution of promoting false narratives regarding the Hamas attack and calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. 22 Democrats voted for the censure, four Republicans against. So what really turned the tide here was this video that Tlaib posted last week accusing President Biden of supporting the genocide of Palestinians, causing him to uh, calling on him to support a ceasefire, and the video included footage of a crowd chanting the phrase "From the river to the sea, Palestine Palestine will be free." And I don't understand this next sentence, which has often been interpreted as a call for the eradication of Israel. Are you kidding me? Get out of map, river to the sea. That's where Israel is. People who chant that are saying Israel has no right to exist. Jewish people have no right to that land. Now, Tlaib took to the floor to defend herself. She didn't get into that phrase. But she said, you know, people shouldn't conflate her criticism of Israel's government with criticism of Jewish people. And then breaking down in tears, she said more than 10,000 Palestinians have been killed, including thousands of children. I don't think there's any question that thousands of Palestinians have been killed. I don't trust Hamas's numbers because they have a long history of inflating those numbers, which is a point that I made on Special Report last night. But clearly, there's been a lot of collateral damage as Israel has retaliated and is trying to topple Hamas after the October 7th attacks in which deliberately and indiscriminately Israeli grandmothers were killed. Israeli babies were killed. Israeli children were killed. Uh, Israeli music festival goers who were there to support peace were killed. And well over 200 hostages were taken, both Israelis and some Americans. And you don't hear much lately about uh, the negotiations to set them free. Uh, Okay, so the Israeli newspaper, the Jerusalem Post, has deleted an article that told readers the following. Fears of rockets and missiles 
amid Israel's war with Hamas, putting millions of Israel's, Israelis excuse me, in a constant state of anxiety and stress. But you could actually use this stress to lose weight and stay healthy. If that is not the stupidest, most tone-deaf thing I've ever read from a newspaper anywhere, I don't know what is. And why did it take this period of time to, for the Jerusalem Post to delete that? Okay, here's a piece from the Australian news outlet, Crikey. <laughs> I like that name. Okay, Adobe is selling artificially generated realistic images of the Israel-Hamas war, which have been used across the internet without any indication they are fake. Adobe allows people to upload and sell AI images as part of its stock image subscription service. Adobe requires submitters to disclose whether they were generated with AI and clearly marks the image as generated with AI. But not everybody's going to do that. Some of these images are staged and others can seem authentic and they're just fake. They didn't happen. Yet another setback for accuracy. Um, you know, I've talked several times and I've interviewed several times the Fox News correspondent Trey Yingst. And I've said that he's emerged as a star of this world. Well, Mediaite has a piece saying he has really stood out. And there are a raft of incredible wartime journalists doing world-class and life-risking reporting. And I totally agree with that. But Yingst has stood out as the new face who just might be out-hustling them all. Watching this brave young journalist, he's 30 years old, excel in report after report while maintaining the ethics of his occupation is exhilarating. Um, a journalism professor is quoted as saying, uh, first, cable, first American cable news reporter, among those, I should say, to enter Gaza, emotional retelling of the video of Hamas-led atrocities. He's just amazing. And so you don't have to take my word for it. And finally on this area, Corinne Jean-Pierre, asked yesterday by NBC's Peter Alexander, if the White House would condemn what I see as the horrible and awful practice of pulling down posters showing Israeli civilians being held hostage by Hamas. And she just kept docking it. She said, I'm not going to get into specifics on that particular thing. Um, Alexander, is the White House's view that these actions should be condemned? The pulling down of them or that it's a form of peaceful protest? Look, I haven't. I've sort of seen the kind of reporting here and there. I think it was from last week. Uh, I'm, we're just not, I'm just not going to, she said. But later, she had to take it all back. Posting on Twitter, communities and families are grieving. For the past month, the families of those who have been taken hostage have lived in agony. Tearing down pictures of their loved ones who are being held hostage by Hamas is wrong and hurtful. Why couldn't she just say that from the podium? Oh, and I do have one more. Roger Waters, who was the front man for Pink Floyd, the rock group, denied the atrocities of October 7th in an interview with Glenn Greenwald. He said Israel was making up stories. He said these things didn't happen. And so, I'm sorry, I like Pink Floyd and its music. I don't really care what Roger Waters has to say about this. What evidence does he have? What expertise does he have? He has every right to say, to speak his mind. But I mean, that's bull. It's been documented. There are videos. This is not made up by Israel. 
Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, number three. Special counsel David Weiss investigating Hunter Biden. He testified yesterday to a House committee behind closed doors. We don't have a transcript. But he, according to reporting, told lawmakers that he has had full authority over the case involving the president's son. Ongoing criminal investigation. Um, In his opening statement, we do have that. Weiss told the Judiciary Committee, I am and have been the decision maker, the decision maker on this case. I don't make these decisions in a vacuum. I'm bound by federal law the principles of federal prosecution, and DOJ guidelines. These processes did not interfere with my decision-making authority. At no time was I blocked or otherwise prevented from pursuing charges or taking the steps necessary in the investigation by other U.S. attorneys, the tax division, or anyone else at the Department of Justice. Now, this is in contradiction with the... um, what an IRS whistleblower said. But here we have the guy testifying under oath. Oh, uh, one other um, tidbit here. I know I mentioned yesterday that Donald Trump slammed Iowa Governor um, Kim Reynolds as the most unpopular governor in the country after she endorsed Ron DeSantis. Well, in an interview with NBC, uh, Kim Reynolds said, was asked about her relationship with Trump. She says, uh, the reporter says, have you spoken to them recently? No. When was the last time? Probably the last time he called to ask if I would endorse him. And I said I wasn't at this point. So Donald Trump asked for the governor's endorsement, didn't get it, and then trashes her. All right, number four. The same New York Times poll, which set off this sort of panic about Biden trailing Trump in five key swing states, also had a version where RFK Jr. was included. And suddenly, RFK getting, I think it was 22% of the vote. Now, the Times says that number almost surely inflates the support of Kennedy because two-thirds of those who said they would back him had said earlier they definitely or probably would vote for one of the two front runners. So this is in the states of Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Uh, findings suggesting that Kennedy is less a political figure, a fixed political figure, in the minds of voters than he is a vessel to register unhappiness about the choice. So, but what's happening is he's he's been out of the news since he dropped out of the Democratic primary and decided to go the independent route. And people have, if when people are reminded of his anti-vaccination stands and some other controversial things he said, um, I think his numbers go down again. But, but, you know, even if he gets 5 6 7%, he could be a factor if that happens. And finally, number five, there was a 970-page memoir out called My Name is Barbara. Barbara Streisand, of course. And since, I mean, who has time to read 970 pages? So I'll give you some of the highlights with help from the Washington Post. I was listening to a Barbara Streisand. I was flipping around on the radio and heard Howard Stern interviewing her. And she said some wild things about having had an out-of-body experience uh, when she was young, also talked about what apparently was a extremely difficult childhood with a stepfather who basically refused to talk to her and a mother who gave her no love. 
And, you know, this all became part of what she had to fight against to become a successful singer and actress. So, uh, let's see here. She doesn't like Donald Trump, one-man weapon of mass destruction, just in case you were wondering. She says things like, that's when I bumped into Hillary's mom. Um, You must let Barbara brag on herself, says a reviewer, um, in the form of testimonials from many people who've been touched by her. She was an impoverished product of the Brooklyn Projects. Her biological father died when she was 15 months old. Then her mom married a loudish car salesman. Barbara's only doll growing up was a hot water bottle wrapped in a knitted wool sweater. She grew up essentially unparented, worked as a cashier at a Chinese restaurant, took acting classes, graduated from high school, went to Manhattan. I have to become famous, she remembers thinking, so I can get somebody else to make my bed. Okay, here's some more stuff. She took one singing lesson and walked out in the middle. Never learned to read music. I mean, it's kind of amazing. But on the other hand, the Beatles couldn't read music either. When her friends persuaded her to sing in a local talent contest, she unpacked it for waiting public, listening now to her live recordings from a Greenwich Village nightclub that launched her. It's astonishing to find one of popular music's supreme voices already in full flower at 20, range, Passion, control, color, dynamic variety, pinpoint intonation, an uninterrupted continuum between head and chest voice. Then, she's 21 years old, 1964, and she gets the lead in the Broadway musical. In a Broadway musical, at 25, she's picked the musical's Funny Girl to do the movie version. She won an Oscar splitting it with Katherine Hepburn. She didn't like her name, so she took off one A. But she kept her last name because how else would my old friends know me once I became famous? You will learn and you will love, Tennessee Williams once wrote of Barbara Streisand, but you will not get close. She has always kept some part of herself for herself. The vulnerability and uh, sensuality that characterize her early film work ebb away during the years. She asked Stephen Sondheim to rewrite whole lyrics for her, and he complied. The day before her 1998 wedding to James Brolin, she asked the major newsworks not to fly helicopters over her house, and they complied. When she found out that Siri was uh, saying her name wrong, she called Apple CEO Tim Cook and asked him to fix it. And she complied. Okay, just we'll close this with things rich and famous people get to say, meaning Barbara. Whoopi Goldberg kindly lent me her bus and drivers. Pierre Cardin gave a party for us at Maxim's. My friend Donna Karen and I went up to Deepak Chopra's Institute in Massachusetts for a retreat. That's where I heard her say in the uh, Stern interview that she became a big adherent of transcendental meditation, but she's too busy now to do much of it. Um, As the pilot was revving up the engines and getting ready to taxi out, I called, stop the plane. I had ordered scones with fresh strawberries and clotted cream as a treat for everyone. And the scones had arrived, but not the cream. I mean, come on, that is just a tragedy. 
Of course you should yell stop the, the plane. I have a feeling this book will do pretty well given uh, her uh, incredible re reputation. And I think I read elsewhere that Barbara Streisand had number one song or album in each of six decades, over 60 years. That is amazing. And with that, I'll let you go. A lot of stuff to get to today. I was talking a little fast to help you understand. I'm from Brooklyn, just like Barbara Streisand. See you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.